What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning best-selling taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, Go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Tuesday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. On the line right now, a first time guest of Oilers Nation, Tyler Yaremchuk. I had to say that with extreme emphasis so that if I do butcher that just a tad, it doesn't uh, sound as if I did. Or I shouldn't have even pointed that out because the listener may not know either no, how to pronounce the last name. So I'm really just digging my own hole here. But Tyler, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm fantastic. And no, you nailed the last name. That was perfect. And even if you butchered it, I'm not the type to get offended. <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, no, my name's never really been uh, one of those names that people um, mispronounce. Um, Chase Thomas is pretty pretty self-explanatory. Um, so you are very familiar with the Edmonton Oilers, uh, a team that obviously did not have the result. Um, they preferred this season. They um, fired their GM midseason. They, uh, there's just a lot of weird stuff with the ownership, like the Gretzky stuff. Like there's a lot of different layers to, um, this team and this organizational structure and all of that. But I think we need to start with Kent Holland, who was the, the Red Wings guy for years and years. And then Eisenman comes back in the fold and he moves on and what looks like a, a, a semi long rebuild in Detroit. Um, he gets to go, um, to his next thing into another win now situation with Connor McDavid. Um, are you surprised, or I guess at the time, were you surprised that the Oilers ended up going with uh, Ken Holland as their next GM? To an extent, yes, because I mean, up until a couple weeks before they did announce that he was coming over, it was kind of just assumed that he was going to stay on in that senior advisor role. And the talk for a long time was that he was content, just kind of moving on with his career, not being a GM anymore. And that he wasn't even, being interviewed for the Oilers GM job. They had a whole other list of candidates. They wanted to talk to Kelly McCrimmon out in Vegas. Um, they wanted to, or they did talk to Mark Hunter, who was the former Maple Leafs assistant GM. Um, there was a couple other names in there. Sean Burke is with Hockey Canada. He was a name I really liked for the job, but Ken Holland was never even really in conversation for the job. And he even admitted when he had his opening press conference here that he didn't, he was fine not being a GM. And then he went to the U18s and he said, he just had that hunger still. He didn't think he would miss it as much as he did early on. Um, then he called Bob Nicholson, the Oilers Entertainment Group vice president, and said, hey, I want the job. And 
before you knew it, he was sitting down at Rogers place and they were introducing him as the GM. Uh, I'm not surprised that they went with a more experienced candidate just because there is a lot on the line here. Ken Holland signed a five-year contract. And if things don't get turned around in five years, um, it could get real ugly here in Edmonton if it hasn't already over the last decade plus. But um, I'm not surprised they went with a more experienced candidate just because although the reward factor is high when you go with maybe someone who's fresh into the game, like a Sean Burke or Mark Hunter would have been, there also is that really big risk there. And I think Ken Holland, to an extent, was the safe play. And at the end of the day, uh, although some fans here at Edmonton question everything the organization does, and I'm certainly on the pessimistic side, um, you can't really complain when the organization brings in a guy who's probably going to go down as one of the best GMs in NHL history if he isn't already. But isn't that just a really weird thing where like their search, I mean, it's a weird decision to just have Holland have that kind of power and just flex and call um, the ownership and being like, um, interview me. Like that's a weird way of going about your, your search and him winding up with a job. Do you think that's like a bad look around the league of like, he got this job because he just was buddy buddy with their owners and like, he just, I, I don't know. That just seems very yeah. strange to me. No, you're absolutely bang on with that. And that's something a lot of Oilers fans are absolutely sick of because you go back all the way to the days of Glenn Sather, who was one of the organization's first GMs. Um, He was just kind of always handed the job. And Bob Nicholson even said when they fired Peter Shirelli, he said, for the first time in this organization's history, we're going to do a thorough search and we're going to interview candidates (laughs) and all this. Like he promised the fan base that there was going to be this big, long search. And there was, they interviewed, I I have sources who tell me they talked to eight or nine different people for this job. And then at the end of the day, it is completely weird to just throw it to the guy who is just kind of sitting above everyone else on the list. Like Ken Holland never had to interview. The Oilers were pretty much calling him saying, will you please be our GM and waiting for him to agree? Um, So that actually did rub a lot of, never mind outside of the city of Edmonton, but the fans in the city, that rubbed a lot of them the wrong way. And it's something you could look at with the coaching search as well, which was announced today. Um, Ken Holland saying, I talked to eight or nine different head coaching candidates, but at the end of the day, he hired the one guy who he's buddy-buddy with and who he didn't have to interview at all. So um, that's kind of irked a bit of the fan base. So while on one hand, you're happy that they got two very deserving and um, experienced candidates, guys who've had success in other markets, on the other hand, it feels like once again with this organization, the people in charge just kind of wanted to hire their buddies. That's, I mean, that's, that's disconcerting if you're an Oilers fan. And it's also just like, I wonder if the GMs, and like you said, you know that they talked to a lot of different names before they went with Holland. Um, do you think there was any part of them that kind of knew that the way the Oilers were going to conduct this, it may not be a fair GM search. They might do something out of left field because of who owns this team and the way this franchise is run. Do you think it was a less appealing job for a rising GM star um, to really entertain than um, that may have been previously indicated? Yeah, there's kind of two sides to that coin. And we did hear some rumblings that a few GM candidates out there kind of said, you know, thanks for the offer, but no thanks. I'm not even going to interview for this. But at the end of the day, if you're an up and coming GM there's only 31 of these jobs out there. So I really don't think that someone like a Sean Burke or a Mark Hunter, who both went very deep in this interview process, I don't think either of those guys were in a position to go, you know what, I'm going to wait for another opportunity to come. No thanks, Edmonton. Because at the end of the day, you never know when that opportunity is going to come, if it's ever going to come again for some of these candidates. Um, So while I do think Edmonton has a bit of a bad reputation in terms of how they've been conducting searches and all that, 
at the end of the day, I do think a lot of candidates looked at it and said, this is my chance to be a GM. And this is my chance to be the GM of a team that has Connor McDavid. And that's a pretty good starting point that, well, no other organization could have offered you. Where did Chirielli go wrong? Well, it was his first draft about a month after being hired. Um, (laughs) The one worst trade, I think the absolute worst trade he made as GM of the Edmonton Oilers was trading the 15th overall pick and the 32nd overall pick in that 2015 NHL draft because they took McDavid first, but they had two more picks coming in that same kind of early on. And he traded them for Griffin Reinhardt, a guy who was not a proven NHLer at all. So he gave up two pretty high draft picks in one of the deepest drafts in NHL history for basically a glorified lottery ticket. Griffin Reinhardt didn't work out, never played a full season here in Edmonton. And then from then on forward, it seemed like he was just trying to play catch up. He was desperately trying to improve the back end. Well, he did that by paying Taylor Hall for Adam Larson. That was another absolutely awful, awful trade. And it just kept going where he'd get behind the eight ball and then make these Hail Mary type of trades where they wouldn't work out. And he just kept losing trades and losing trades. And there were areas to give him credit. There were areas they did okay when he tried to make those smaller kind of bets. He brought in Pat Maroon and convinced Anaheim to keep 25% of his salary. And the next year, Maroon scored almost 30 goals on this team. Um, He got Zach Cassian for Ben Scrivens, a guy who was basically the Oilers' third goalie at the time. And Zach Cassian was being cast away in Montreal. He had an arrest and all that, some really bad problems off the ice. Peter Shirley brought him in, and he's been a useful NHLer ever since then. Um, The first time they brought in Chris Russell, that was a – October something signing like right at the end of training camp and he came in and was he was solid for them for that one year and for the playoff run as well Um, but he just lost a lot of those big trades he tried to make and that's something that was a knock on him going all the way back to Boston when he would lose the Tyler Sagan trade as well Um, and some would say that even when he left he left them in cap hell Um, so I'd say managing the salary cap and just losing big big important trades were the two things that have really set back this organization and they're a direct result of Peter Shirelli. Um, so he's kind of left them in a bad spot salary cap wise. Um, but maybe one positive, if you want to look back on his time with the Oilers is that the drafting has really never been better. He traded away a lot of draft picks, but the ones he used, especially late in draft, those are turning into and looking like legitimate NHL players. And that's something the Oilers have never really had in the last 25 years. You're looking at guys like Dmitry Samurakov. He's a defenseman out with the Guelph storm of the OHL. He was a third-round pick. He's looking like he's going to be a really good NHLer. Ethan Bear was a fourth-rounder. Caleb Jones was a fifth-rounder. Those guys really late in the draft. These defensemen are actually turning up and starting to look really solid. Tyler Benson was a second-rounder. He's a forward who looks like he's trending in the right direction as well. So he drafted really well. He made some really good low-end bets, but then just the high-end stuff. Big-name free agents like Milan Lucic, managing the salary cap and those big trades. That's kind of, in the end, what lost him his job. I mean, yeah, it just seems like the the draft picks and just the win now approach and kicking the can down the road. And like, I, I just imagine if you're a GM, of, I mean, the Bucks are about to go through this with Giannis Antetokounmpo and teams that like traditionally have been run poorly or like previous drafts, even if a new administration comes in, it's like, okay, um, we have this tight window with an all-time talent and I have to figure out how to make this work in a very short amount of time. And I, that's part of the reason that I'd be kind of fearful if I was a a, a GM um, who was considering uh, the Edmonton stuff. It's just like, uh, I don't know. Uh, the McDavid stuff, it's great to have somebody like him, but also, I mean, uh, is it realistic to expect them to 
be able to create a contender um, while they still have him under contract. Like it's, it's an interesting dilemma. Like how much do you believe in yourself that you can turn this team around rather quickly and uh, get Connor McDavid into the playoffs sooner and later so that you can stop getting uh, angry calls from uh, Batman about uh, the best player in the sport, just never appearing on the biggest stage. Yeah. And I think that's a fantastic point. The one thing I will say is outside of Connor McDavid, they do have some really good young pieces on this team. Like, McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, I, th- I still think that was the number one deadliest duo in the NHL this year. Maybe you could argue the McKinnon-Landis-Gogger and McKinnon-Randon, but that was more of a trio. McDavid and Dreisaitl carried this team on a regular basis. Ryan Nugent-Hopkins did his absolute best on that second line, but there were games where he's playing with guys who had been on waivers earlier in the year. Like Ryan Nugent-Hopkins just had no help, but those three forwards are damn good elite forwards, and I think that's a really good core and then on the back end as well, as much as the Oilers' defense kind of gets ripped, you do have Adam Larson. Oscar Kleffbaum, I think, is underrated. Darnell Nurse took some really big strides forward this year. Andre Sekera is a good veteran. And then I mentioned that kind of young wave with Bouchard, Jones, Bear, Samurakov. This is a decently good core. The GM, and this will be Ken Holland's job this summer, he needs to come in and just kind of fill around the edges. He needs to get some more good complementary players. So, I don't view it as like an impossible task or anything like that um, because that the high end of the core is there. You just need to find sort of a, a large crop of players that can support them. And the only problem is the crop of players that are here right now that are supposed to be supporting them aren't good enough and they're overpaid. So it, it is a big issue. And I mean, Ken Holland has a five-year contract. If he doesn't have this thing figured out in five years and if he doesn't do it, then I think we might be getting to the point where it's okay. Is Connor McDavid's time in Edmonton going to be up? Is he maybe going to get frustrated with this? But I, I don't think, I think Ken Holland will get this full five years to do it. And I don't think we'll see a scenario in two or three years where Connor McDavid is saying, all right, I've had enough, get me out of here. I, but I think in five years, that might be a conversation that is legitimate. So you kind of touched on this a little bit, but this was in my notes. If you were if you were Ken Allen and you're running this team this summer and you're running the draft and you're running free agency, um, how would you approach it? Is there any particular player you have in mind either through the draft or um, in free agency? How would you, um, what, what, what would you do? What's realistic um, that Holland could do this summer? Well, I think step one is getting rid of some salary that they need cap space this summer. Right now they have about $10.8 million in cap space. And then, they also have some free agents of their own that they need to take care of. Um, but right now I have them projected at around $7 million to spend on free agents. Um, that's not even close to enough, especially when you consider that you still need to find a backup goalie and a legitimate one. So I would start by trying to move out some salary. And there's a couple names I'm looking at. One is uh, Chris Russell. He's a right shot defenseman, but he has to play the left side because they have, or sorry, he's a left shot defenseman who has to play the right side because they have too many guys on the left side. He's making $4 million for the next two years. I would try to get rid of him. Um, Milan Lucic is the one Albatross contract that is just handcuffing them four more years at $6 million. And this guy can't even get 10 goals a season. Like it's just been horrible to watch his career fall into the dumpster the way it has. I don't think you're moving on from Lucic, but I do think you can move on from Russell. So step one for me would be trying to get rid of Russell's contract. I would even look at buying out or trying to trade someone like a Sam Gagne, who's making $3 million, which isn't like a criminal amount of money, but those kind of smaller things can all add up. So if you can get rid of those two guys, you're looking at an extra $7 million to spend. And then all of a sudden, maybe you move on from a late round draft pick, or maybe you move on. I listed off those four young defensemen. I think you could trade two of them and still be in pretty decent shape, but 
Maybe you look at bringing in a more established winger to play with Ryan Nugent Hopkins. And then when you run McDavid and Drysaddle on line one, line two, if you have Ryan Nugent Hopkins with another proven 25 goal guy, all of a sudden that top six is a little bit more legitimate. And on the back end, you move out Russell, who's kind of slowed down a bit. And maybe you elevate up Evan Bouchard, who's the young up and comer. And he injects a little bit more speed, puck moving ability into your uh, top six there on the back end. So there's lots of kind of areas they need to fill out. They need a legitimate goalie as well, but you can't do any of that until you really start to free up some serious cash. And to me, that starts with a guy like Chris Russell. So I think move number one for Holland, and he kind of alluded to it in his press conference today when they announced Dave Tippett as the coach, is he said, if you can't move the puck and jump up in the rush, you have no spot on this team. And to me, that was him saying, I'm looking at trading Chris Russell. That's going to be step one. Well, the good news is there are a lot of goalies that are available this summer, right? Yeah, I mean, on the free agent market, there kind of is that high end with Semyon Varlamov and Sergei Bobrovsky. The Oilers mm-hmm. aren't in a position to go get one of those two guys just because they have, they're paying Nico Koskinen $4.5 million next season, which is just more ridiculous. It gets more ridiculous the more I think about it. Um, so they kind of have to shop around in the backup goalie market and find someone who they think is good value. And in that area, the Carolina hurricanes guys, maybe just cause like they're losing everybody and they're probably going to go with um, their AHL guy to start next season, potentially. Yeah. And actually that's a team I've looked at as well. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with someone like Peter Mraz. I thought he had a really good regular season as well. If they move on from him, I think that's someone the Oilers could target. Curtis McElhenney is a little bit on the older side. So I'm not sure if I'm in love with that name, but that might be an option as well. Um, someone like Mike Smith was in Calgary and he has a history with Dave Tippett. Again, he's a veteran backup. His ceiling isn't very high, but if you need to shop around in kind of the fringe areas of free agency to fill up your goaltending position, that might be a name you look at. The one that I've been really pushing here, um, is actually Tristan Jari out in Pittsburgh. Um, he's kind of the third goalie behind Matt Murray and Casey DeSmith. He's under contract this year at $675,000. And so that's dirt cheap would fit in perfectly here in Edmonton. He actually played his junior hockey here in Edmonton as well with the Edmonton oil Kings. I actually caught up with him during the oil Kings playoff run this year. He came up and joined our broadcast. He's a BC guy, but he loves Edmonton so much that he actually lives here in the off season. He doesn't go home to BC. So he has these connections to the area. He's comfortable with the city. He's dirt cheap next year. He can't be sent on waivers next year. So Pittsburgh would risk losing him for nothing next year at the end of training camp because they like I said they have the Smith and they have Matt Murray um, he's walked that line as well of a guy who's put up some pretty solid numbers in the American League and he can now mix that he has 30 starts in the NHL um, so I think he would be just a dream candidate it would be a bit of a risk with a guy who hasn't doesn't have a full season of NHL hockey under his belt but I think Tristan Jari is a name that the Oilers should seriously consider and I'm really hoping they do because that's an, like I said a guy with Edmonton connections who's dirt cheap young room to improve and have some nhl experience i think that would be a perfect fit for them are fans excited about tippet at all like just is it do you look at the win-loss record if you're a fan you're just like well i mean he was good in phoenix i mean they made the playoffs a lot early on but then again they missed the playoffs the last like five like how much do they look at it as like oh the situation in arizona like he's been away for two years he's been helping seattle get off the ground in 2021 um it it definitely signals bringing in Holland and bringing in Tippett is like we are bringing in veteran professionals who have had previous success in the NHL. Like they are, they're not taking risks. They're, it just seems like they're like, okay, we have to get this thing right very quickly. And the only way to do that is to go with proven commodities. 
Um, but Tippett hasn't been on the bench in several years now. Uh, how was how the fan reaction to Tippett? I would say it's the same as Holland, where I think there is kind of like a sense of relief that they went with these sort of safe choices um, in Tippett and Holland and guys that are proven have had success elsewhere. Um, but at the same time, again, it's concerning that a guy who wasn't really interviewed, he was just kind of offered the job based on his reputation, ended up getting the job. Uh, I think both of them in their press conferences did a really good job of sort of quieting down the pessimistic side of the fan base. And Dave Tippett today talked a lot about analytics and how much he loves analytics. And a lot of Oilers fans are really big into that as well. So as soon as he starts talking about how he's been using analytics since 1994, the fan base kind of goes, all right, maybe this guy's legit. Um, as far as his time with Arizona, I think Oilers fans kind of recognize that he didn't have the offensive horses to really compete in Arizona. And the fact he had as many good teams there as he did is a testament to how good of a coach he is. Like that one year when they went to the conference finals, he had like a 40 some year old Ray Whitney. It's so like the ghost of Ray Whitney and Redeem Verbata and Shane Doan, who's like, he's a good player, but he's not exactly an offensive driver. Those were like his three go-to guys in that run to the conference finals. And he was able to develop a system that made them successful. They were never a cap team, right? They would only spend, I mean, a lot of years they're just struggling to get to the cap floor. Um, so he did actually pretty well with a crappy situation in Arizona slash Phoenix. And coming up here, he's going to have Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, and Ryan Nugent Hopkins. He's never at any point in his career had that kind of high-end offensive talent to work with. When he was in Dallas, he had Mike Madano, but no one at the level of McDavid and Dreisaitl offensively. Um, so I, I really think fans should be more excited than they are because I think this is a guy who's proven through different situations when he was an assistant coach he was kind of known as an offensive guy he ran power plays I think when he was in LA as an assistant he oversaw their power play and it was one of the best in the league and then he went to Dallas and he talked about at his press conference day how when he went to Dallas they wanted him to inject more offense into their lineup and then when he went to Arizona it was kind of well we don't have the horses to do that so we need to find a way to win games without scoring four goals a game. So I do think he has the ability to adapt, and that's why I'm excited about him. Um, but I, I do think there is a part of the fan base that's naturally skeptical. I mean, at the end of the day, the organization has one playoff run in the last 13 years. So how can the fan base really be giving them the benefit of the doubt, right? Yeah, um, but they kind of have to because you have an all-time talent, and who knows uh, when the next Connor McDavid is coming through Edmonton. Um Speaking of McDavid, what is the, is there anything else that he can um, do to get to even a, a higher level? Is, is he at peak Connor McDavid superstar form right now? Is there anything else that he can actually work on that you that you've seen? You're like, oh, there's actually another another level here potentially. Um, he's gotten a lot better at it since his second year in the league, um, shooting the puck. In his first couple of years, he would always pass up these opportunities to shoot the puck. He'd be wide open in the slot and he'd still be looking for his teammates on these, for these backdoor tap-ins and Oilers fans would get pretty frustrated with him because we knew he had a good shot. He would just be hesitant to use it in his first year. He scored 16 goals in 45 games in his second year. He scored 30 and 82, but then we saw it a little bit last year and then a little bit this year as well, where he starts to just shoot the puck and all of a sudden back-to-back 41 goal campaigns. Um, so I think shooting the puck and just becoming a bit of a better goal scorer is something that he can maybe work on. Like, I wouldn't be surprised this year if we see Connor McDavid hit 50 goals. But at the end of the day, I think he's an absolutely perfect NHL hockey player. Um, him and Dryside will play off each other so well. They have just this perfect chemistry where it's cliche, but they always know where each other are on the ice. 
when they do some of these like double, they'll go in on like a two on one and they'll make like three passes back and forth. And it's, they kind of know that exactly how that play is going to work out exactly how it's going to be finished off. And um, McDavid will play center when they're on the left side of the ice, when they're on the right side of the ice, it's actually dry side. will take in the face off. So I'm actually really excited to see if Drysdale and McDavid stay together for 82 games next year. And if McDavid continues to sort of develop that goal scoring side of his game, um, I mean, his career high was set this last year at 116 points. I think we could in the next few years, see McDavid hit the 130 mark, even like just some unheard of stuff. Cause he's that talented of a hockey player. Last thing on the Oilers and then we'll move on. Um, the ownership group. What, what do you make of them? Is there an underlying rottenness <laughs> to this to this group to their propensity to surround themselves with stars and things of the past like what how would you characterize um the edmonton oiler ownership situation yeah so daryl cates bought the team um about 10 years ago now and i mean to kind of understand why oiler fans aren't as frustrated with him as maybe you'd expect you need to know what came before that right there was a group called the edmonton investors group um, and they were really the only reason the Oilers didn't move in the early 2000s because there was always talk that all oh, the Oilers are going to Nashville, the Oilers are going to Nashville. Um, and then obviously credit to Gary Bettman, who would always step in and say the Edmonton Oilers aren't moving. And then the Edmonton Investors Group stepped in and really saved the team, but they were never really willing to spend very much. They were Oilers were kind of a budget team. They would just make do with whatever money they had. And then they sold the team to Daryl Cates, and uh, he made his money in the pharmaceutical game. He is like a billionaire. He's, I, I don't have it in front of me, but if you Google it, he's one of the richest people in the world. Um, he buys his team and all of a sudden it's like, all right, we got one owner who can make all the decisions. He has seemingly an unlimited bankroll to spend on this team. And honestly, we've seen that. Like He paid Peter Shirelli and Todd McClellan a lot of money. Then when it was time to fire them, he fired them. And now he, they're paying Ken Holland. Ken Holland's one of the highest paid GMs in the league at $5 million, if not the highest paid GM in the league at $5 million. Dave Tippett came in, they're paying him around $3 million as well. So Daryl Cates has never been afraid to spend. And I think Oilers fans are really grateful for that. And he was also instrumental in building the new arena we have downtown, which is absolutely beautiful as well. So I do think Oilers fans always kind of understand that no one wants to see the team win more than owner Daryl Cates. And he's backed that up with his pocketbook over the last couple of years. But the one knock has always been, because he was an Oilers fan and he's an Edmonton guy, he grew up with those 80s Oilers. The knock has always been that he wants to keep them employed, right? Wayne Gretzky's always hanging around the team, and there's always that stench of what Oilers fans have labeled the old boys club, right, with the Kevin Lowe's and the Craig McTavish's and those guys who are seemingly only around and seemingly only have jobs because they played for the team when they were winning cups in the 80s. Um, but I will say this. I think Daryl Cates has kind of learned his lesson a bit because Ken Holland has stepped in and immediately Craig McTavish was gone. He's going to coach a team in Russia now. Today it was announced that Paul Coffey has lost his job as skills development development coach. Um, I think we're going to actually see uh, Dwayne Sutter was another guy, head of pro scouting. Bang, he's moved on as well. Um, so I think Daryl Cates has maybe learned his lesson that you can't keep giving your idols from the 80s all these jobs because that's not how legitimate organizations are ran. So um, in terms of his relationship with the fans, I think they're grateful for all the money and all the things he's sort of done for them. Um, there was some frustration with that old boys club, but this hiring of Ken Holland, I think has kind of turned over a new leaf in the relationship between Daryl Cates and the fans. Cause I think they kind of understand that he's learned his lesson and it's time for a new start in the organization. 
So what happened um, in game one with the, the Blues and the Bruins? The Blues get out to a 2-0 lead, and then it just everything else falls apart. Um, uh, what did you see there? Uh, well, I mean, before the game, I was kind of talking to some people, and I, I do my fair share of sports betting, and I was looking at it, and the Blues were the underdogs in this one, and the Bruins had 11 days off. So I was kind of sitting there going, you know, the Blues might still have a little bit of mojo and momentum going from their conference final win. And the Bruins had 11 days off, so they might be a little rusty. So I was really feeling the Blues in this one. And I thought they would jump out to a good start early. And then they would just be able to play that Craig Berube system of rolling four lines and just skating the Bruins down to a powder. And they, they didn't do that. I mean, they got off to the good start. They were up 2 nothing with 19 minutes to go in the second period. And then the Bruins just kind of flexed their muscles on them and got scoring from every single part of their lineup. Connor Clifton, Charlie McAvoy, Sean Corrali, Brad Marchand, two defensemen, your top line player, and a fourth liner. Um, the Bruins are a damn good hockey team. And honestly, I thought this series would go seven games before last night, but after watching the way the Bruins just seemingly flipped a switch and came back on the Blues, the Bruins look like an unbeatable team right now. Like They're so deep. Tuka Rask is putting up numbers that are borderline historic. Um, and I, I honestly, right now, I can't see the Bruins losing this series, especially after the way they played last night. So you're not a believer in the fourth line with the Blues saving them uh, in uh, the, the remainder of this series. I'm, I'm trying no, to get myself into it. I, I, it's just a better story. Like the Bruins are just, they're a buzzsaw, and they're just. I when they got out to that two zero um deficit it was like okay maybe because yeah. they like the blues are gonna have to split at least one and i just i don't know they're, they're just a wrecking ball and um thinking that their goalie was a little bit shaken after the 11 days off and a little bit rusty um you were like okay maybe and then no they figured it out and they were fine and that's exactly why i don't believe in them right now because that was the game for the blues if they couldn't win in game one when the bruins are maybe a little bit rusty after that time off and Maybe not as, I mean, they had the days off and then you could always argue that maybe they're not as fresh because they aren't, they've been more far removed from game action. Like that was a game the Blue should have won, especially considering that you were up to nothing and let you let that one slip. So I just have a tough time believing that in game two, now that the Bruins should have a ton of confidence carrying over from that killer last 30 minutes of the game. Like they were out shooting them at one point. I saw 30 to 12 when I looked up at the screen. Um, I, I just have a hard time believing that the Blues are going to overcome that. If they would have won last night, I would have been like, all right, buckle up. This thing's going seven. But now I just think the Bruins might honestly be able to make quick work of them. They're rolling. Well, you, you said you're a betting guy. And I, I remember seeing today that like Vegas is extremely nervous about this series because I think the Blues coming into the year were 301 odds of winning the winning the cup. And they were, I mean, last place in the league at one point in January. So for them to pull it off and actually win it, it's it's bad news for Vegas. So uh, I wonder yeah. how much, uh, like, I, I don't know. I just think that's a little interesting nugget that this is one where they're like, oh, this is terrifying. But this is also where they were like last year, right? With Vegas. Yeah. With the Golden Knights, um, the NHL has been yeah. treated to some really good storylines in the last two cup finals. St. Louis as a team, I mean, fired their coach in December. On January 3rd, they were dead last in the entire NHL. Dead last. And then they, they didn't just squeak into the playoffs either. Like They came third in their division, and the last week of the season for them was actually pretty relaxed because they kind of had their spot all wrapped up. Um, it's a hell of a story. It's a way better story than the Boston Bruins. Who wants to see the city of Boston win 
another championship. It's getting tiring. They're arrogant. I don't want to see it either. But um, I think the luck just maybe has ran out here for the Blues. Um, if they prove me wrong, though, and I'm really, really hoping they do, that'll go down as one of the best stories in NHL history. DJ Smith, good hire for Ottawa. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big Maple Leafs guy, but based on everything I've read, um, he seems like that next kind of up-and-coming coach. Um, I don't know too much about him, but I think for where the Senators are right now in that kind of phase of their rebuild, I, I, I do think it's a good fit for them. Um, I don't think just based on how Eugene Melnick is and all that um, and how terrible things have seemed off the ice in Ottawa for the past couple of seasons, I don't think they were in a position to go out and snag some veteran high-end candidate. So it makes sense that DJ Smith is their guy. I know that's a guy that had his name thrown around the Edmonton Oilers organization a little bit, but then he decided on Ottawa, obviously. And I think the Oilers just had their mind on Dave Tippett the entire time. So I I think it's a good fit. He's an Ontario guy as well. So he's familiar with the area. Um, He's coming from the Leafs as well. So maybe he has some secrets he can share with the senators from that perspective. He's young as well. He's 42. So I think with the senators and the fact that they're kind of in the middle of this really long rebuild right now, um, I think it's good for them to go out and get a young guy who can potentially be their coach for the next five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years if all goes well. Are you a believer in this rebuild? Do you think this is a, a, a an ownership group and a team that can actually uh, really turn around? Because I mean, what an awful point differential, and they were just they were just so damn bad, especially down the stretch last year. I, I don't know. I feel like they're five years away from being five years away. Oh, I'm, I would almost agree with you on that as well. Um, just looking at that team and the cupboard they have, like between the pipes, they have Philip Gustafson, who's a 20 year old Swede and they got him in a trade from Pittsburgh. He has some cachet to his name and they have some interesting forwards as well with guys like Alex Foreman and Drake Batherson. And then obviously Brady Kachuk um, on the back end, you're looking at a guy like Thomas Shabbat. You're looking at Dylan DeMello, um, Cody Cece doesn't have a contract so you never really know how that's going to go. And I'm not a big fan of his anyways. And then Eric Brandstrom is the big piece they got from Vegas. And I've heard that Eric Brandstrom is like a young Eric Carlson, like he's going to be that good. So they do kind of have this interesting core building, but at the same time, I don't know if I'm necessarily a big Pierre Dorian fan, their general manager and their owner, Eugene Melnick, I think is one of the biggest idiots in pro sports right now. Like every time it seems like maybe something's starting to go good for them, he just steps out in front of the media and just keeps running his mouth. Like if Eugene Melnick just shut up and stayed behind closed doors, like Oilers owner Daryl Cates does, like you hear from Daryl Cates once every four years here in Edmonton. And I love that. I don't like an owner that's meddling. If you own the team, write the checks and then hire people that'll do the job for you. And Eugene Melnick just does not have that in his mind. He loves getting out in front of the media. He loves having cameras in his face. And I do think it's contributed to sort of a toxic culture around that organization. But who knows? He could smarten up because they do have, and he better smarten up because they have some decent young pieces there. And I think it's going to take two or three years. It might take four years for everyone to properly develop. But if they play their cards right, maybe just maybe they could build a winner. But I don't want to see Eugene Melnick succeed in the slightest. I don't think you're alone there. Um, Jack Hughes or Capo? Who goes number one? Um, Capo Caco had a hell of a world championships. Like that was, he looked like a man amongst men. That was really the first time I've seen him play hockey against men. I'm not a huge draft nerd per se. So I don't watch all of these high end candidates, nine, 10, 11 times throughout the year. Like a lot of other writers do. Um, but based on the people I talk to and kind of the scouting reports I read, 
I wouldn't be surprised if uh, New Jersey just sticks and goes with uh, Jack Hughes. He's a center, which teams always prefer because you're always looking for that top-line franchise center. And Jack Hughes known more of, the, of an offensive center, whereas Nico Heischer kind of seems to be molding more into maybe a solid two-way center. So I think that opportunity to have Hughes and Heischer 1-2 as your top two centers for the next 10 to 15 years if you're New Jersey is honestly just too good to pass up. But that's not a knock on Capo Caco as well. And the fact that he's had this big surge since the calendar flipped in 2019 to even make this a conversation atop the draft is a massive, massive compliment to him. And I'm really excited to see him play on Broadway next season. I have no doubt that he's jumping straight to the NHL. And uh, him in that Ranger blue is going to be pretty cool. I just, there's got to be a way for either Capo or uh, Jack to, uh, to, to fall to Anaheim. That'd be great. <laughs> um, so shout out to the Ducks for winning too many games down the stretch after firing their head coach and uh, Bob Murray self-sabotaging uh, Bob Murray, the general manager, and uh, taking them out of contention for oh. um, two all-time talents, potentially. So that, you want, that was great. You want to talk about losing your way out of a great spot. If the Oilers would have lost their last game of the regular season to the Calgary Flames, they would have been seventh last in the NHL. You know who was seventh last in the NHL? the New York Rangers. If the Oilers would have lost one more game in the regular season, they would have been down where the Rangers were. They would have won up and had the number two overall pick. Jesus. But I mean, it, uh, the Oilers fans can never complain about lottery luck because they got Connor McDavid when they had an 11% chance. So um, I try not to actually complain about that too much. I, I wonder if Bettman's like, uh, okay, sorry guys, um, New Jersey, um, you're, you're taking Capo. Sorry. You're in the smaller market and uh, Jack Hughes is going in to New York. Sorry, I'm sure the NHL would prefer that. Like, Uh, you would want Jack Hughes, the American-born guy, to be wearing that iconic Rangers jersey as well. I, I have no doubt that from a marketing perspective, they would love that. But from a marketing perspective, they also probably would have wanted Connor McDavid in Toronto and Austin Matthews in Arizona to kind of save that franchise. So, uh, Bettman doesn't always want anybody in Arizona. I'm not sure about that. Uh, Batman's put a lot of his money behind that Arizona franchise. I'm sure he would have loved, like, I mean, you remember when Sidney Crosby came to the league, Pittsburgh was just in absolute shambles, right? And then Crosby kind of came in and propped up that organization, and now they're extremely well-run and extremely successful off the ice. Um, So I always kind of wondered if Austin Matthews would have had that same effect in Arizona, but at the same time, it's a bit of a different story than what Pittsburgh was back in 06. I mean, can we really say it's just been this great success for Pittsburgh? No, I'm just kidding. Um, just an insane, an insane run they went on, and they finally ran out of gas, and they got it. And I mean, they're going to have an interesting summer. It looks like there are going to be some big trades with them. Um, last thing, and then we'll wrap up here. Mike Madonna, he is an advisor to the Wild. Um, and like, are you surprised at all that he's getting back into it? Is that something that Wild fans should be excited about? Yeah, I think we, I think Mike Madonna has some cachet behind his name he's kind of been looking to get back into the management side for a few years now and he feels like this is the right fit he got his career started with the minnesota north stars if i'm not mistaken he's from that kind of area as well isn't he yes he's from Uh, michigan i think oh he's from michigan but uh he got a start there in minnesota with the north stars uh i think that's a guy who maybe if he kind of gets built up through an organization in four or five years maybe three years i don't know you could be sitting there going, hey, you know, Mike Medano's in contention to be a GM of some team. Um, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, just to talk about the Minnesota Wild for a bit, um, I have no idea what the hell they're doing. They traded Michael Granlin for Kevin Fiala at the deadline. That was a deal 
that made me shake my head. Earlier in the year, they traded Nino Niederreiter for Victor Rask, and that was one that just blew my mind when it happened. And then as the year went on and Niederreiter kept having success in Carolina, it looked worse and worse. And then you had a couple of weeks ago that rumored deal, or not rumored, there was a deal in place to send Jack Johnson and Phil Kessel to the wild. And then Jason Zucker and Victor Rask were going to go back to the Pittsburgh Penguins and Phil Kessel flexed his no movement clause and mixed that whole deal. But even if that one would have gone through, that might've been worse than the other trades that I've already ripped that they made uh, earlier in the year. Like I think Minnesota, Mike Medano aside, Paul Fenton, their GM needs to figure out what the hell he wants to do with this team and what direction he wants to take it. Cause it seems like he's still hanging on to that hope that they can compete and go on a playoff run in the next couple of years. And when I look at their roster, they're just not good enough. That's a team who I think would benefit from maybe selling off a few more veterans for future assets and trying to retool this thing before they might be forced to go into an all-out rebuild. Doesn't seem like that's what they're going to do. But, I mean, he he came in and like his whole thing was like, we're going to think outside of the box. So nothing should surprise us with what the Wild do, I think, this summer. Yeah, I mean, nothing will surprise me, but I, I'm not sure how much of it, just based on the trades he's made, I don't know how many of them are necess- I'm necessarily going to agree with. Uh, it is going to be an interesting summer. I heard Elliot Friedman from Sportsnet was talking. Uh, it was a couple weeks ago now, but he was saying that he's heard Jared Spurgeon's name out there in trade talks. He's an Edmonton product. Um, that's a name. If I was the Oilers, I'd be all over to kind of tie together a couple of topics here because if Minnesota is dumb enough to move on from a guy like Jared Spurgeon, uh, I have no idea what Paul Fenton would be thinking on that one. All right, um, Tyler, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, is there anything we need to check out specifically from you this week? Um, no, not really. I'm just kind of covering some off-season storylines. Every week I do a rumors blog for Oilers Nation. Uh, going to have a bunch of stuff coming out with the draft next month. Honestly, if people just kind of follow me on Twitter, my Twitter handle is just my name, Tyler Uremchuk. I'm always tweeting out articles and tweeting out different takes and stuff on there. So nothing specific, but in general, I'm pretty active. There you go. Do it. I follow him. Tyler, we'll have to do this again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Whenever you want. Thanks, Chase. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, Be sure to check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Thank you for your support and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.